Well, last week we began our series in 1 Timothy, and if you weren't here uh, and didn't have the opportunity, I'd encourage you to listen uh, to that first sermon, not because I want you to listen to me, but because I really feel like it is important to help set the stage and context of what we'll be walking through in the the coming weeks. Because what we saw is that right up front, uh, Paul makes his purpose for writing this letter very clear. He tells Timothy, almost from the very beginning, to tell the, the false teachers to stop teaching strange doctrine. You'll notice he didn't say correct them or try to educate them. He says very clearly, tell them to stop. Because the influence of these false teachers was creating division and disunity within the Ephesian church. Their doctrine was somehow distorting the the glorious good news of the gospel. And we learned that their, their teaching was actually misleading because their character was corrupt. As is often the case, moral compromise often precedes doctrinal decline. And Paul explains how these imposters wanted, interesting word choice there, wanted to be teachers of the law. They they wanted to be people of influence. They wanted a, a place of authority. But they were driven by selfish motives. Because instead of sitting under the law's conviction of their sin, they used the law as a means to promote their own self righteousness. They made confident assertions about things that they did not fully understand, dogmatic claims that required legalistic compliance. It was all about following rules instead of learning how to follow Jesus. And so Paul tells Timothy, we both know that's not what the good news of the gospel is all about. The law was designed to expose our sin, to reveal our desperate need for a Savior. All through the law and the Old Testament in general, everything ultimately pointed us to Jesus Christ, our Savior. As Peter proclaims in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given unto men by which we must be saved. You may remember last week, Paul closed out that first section of his letter by saying that this glorious good news of the gospel, this truth of salvation through faith in Christ alone was, was entrusted to him by God. And now, in our passage this morning, it'll be interesting because Paul uses the exact same word, the exact same terminology, and he says, now, to you, young Timothy, I am entrusting this to you. Paul is passing the baton of ministry from from one generation to the next so that this message of the glorious good news of the gospel continues to be proclaimed. And, And what I want us to understand this morning is that that line of succession continues with us. What Paul entrusted to Timothy has been passed down to to you and I. We too now must share in that responsibility to guard the glorious good news of the gospel and to proclaim that good news, not just in what we say, but in how we live. Because very often that's where you see the gospel 
put on display. Let's begin our time by going to the Lord in prayer. Father, we want to take seriously what has been entrusted to us. We see that you entrusted the Apostle Paul with something that he then passed down to young Timothy that then was passed down from one generation to the next to the point that here now this morning we are talking about what has been entrusted to us. The glorious good news of salvation through faith in Christ alone. The abundant goodness of your grace and mercy that never ends. There is no bottom or shore as we sang this morning. Father, would you just stir our hearts to grasp the beauty and wonder, the goodness of what has been entrusted to us, and may it stir a desire within us to be faithful, not in just what we say, but in how we live, so that that we truly can live in a way that puts the gospel on display. Father, we thank you, and we pray these things in your name, amen. All right, if you would, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, I'd love for you to follow along. Um, I'll have the scriptures up on the screen, but if you have a Bible, I encourage you to take it out and read with me. I'm going to start reading in verse 12 as Paul continues in his letter to Timothy and says in verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Paul explains in this section of his letter how even though he had been entrusted with the glorious good news of the gospel, this was certainly not a privilege that he had somehow earned. In fact, Paul will tell us that he was probably the most undeserving of all. And he explains this by taking us into his personal testimony, how he came literally face to face with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. And here's something I want you to notice. I want you to pay attention to what Paul seems to be doing here because I think it's really important. You remember, he began his letter very strongly, didn't he? Condemning these false teachers who were teaching these strange doctrines that were causing disunity within the church. He goes on and talks about how the law is intended to expose our sin. And he lists uh, the reality of that in verses 9 and 10. Talking about the ungodly and sinners, the profane Those who are immoral, homosexual, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and on. And so it would be easy for Paul now to stand in judgment and point his finger at sinners like that. But what he says in our passage is, you think you were bad. I can assure you I was much worse. Instead of condemning others, he highlights the depth of his own depravity. Suggesting to his audience, if God can save a wretch like me, then he can certainly save someone like you. 
He explains in verse 13 how he was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. And I think he's intending to list these in ascending order of how evil and vile they really are. As a blasphemer, he pridefully denied his need for the saving work of Christ. He opposed the very idea that Jesus was the promised Messiah. Not only that, he he took it another level and he forced others who might have a genuine faith in Jesus to deny their faith under the threat of death. He, He spoke about this during his testimony before Agrippa in Acts 26 when he says, so then, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. As I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to, there it is, blaspheme. And being fiercely enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. You may remember when Paul stood in silent observance when they were stoning Stephen to death because of his faith in Christ. Paul was a violent blasphemer who led a violent persecution of the church. The the way the original language describes that is a word that we translate as insolent. I think Paul uses that term purposefully because it's someone who has a thoroughly objectionable character. In other words, Paul is saying that there, he possessed no redeeming value in his conduct. As he will later confess, he was the worst or the, the chief of all sinners. To kind of get a sense of what Paul is doing here, instead of judging others with self-righteous pride, He's highlighting just how much he deserved God's judgment and wrath. But instead of judgment and wrath, Paul says, I received God's mercy. He goes on and says, God had mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Which, to be honest, at first glance, when you read that, it kind of sounds like Paul is letting himself off the hook a little bit, right? Like, God gave me a break because I I just didn't know any better. But I can assure you that's not what he is saying here. Instead, he's saying how he sincerely believed that he was doing the right thing. He wrongly assumed that he was honoring God with his righteous zeal. But what Paul would later learn that he was, in fact, blinded by his unbelief. His ignorance was fueled by his self-righteousness. His righteous zeal was actually sinful rebellion. And yet, God still had mercy on him. He says in verse 14 that God's grace was more abundant than all of his sin. Literally overabundant, exceedingly abundant. It's the same idea that he has in mind in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, when he says, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. 
As we sang this morning, our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Praise the Lord for that, right? God's miraculous grace turned Paul, the the blasphemer, the, the, the persecutor, the violent aggressor, into an apostle who now says is full of grace and faith. And and there was a radical transformation that took place. That grace flooded into his life. And the picture I have in mind is like the the water coming over the edge of Niagara Falls. In the amount of 3.2 tons per second. But you need to know this morning that is like a drop in the bucket. Compared to the grace that has been lavished on us. Paul says this grace is what made his faith come alive. That's why Paul began the whole section this morning with words of praise. Yes, God entrusted him with the glorious good news of the gospel, but only because he saved him by that same gospel he has now been called to proclaim. You see that? Look at how it continues in verse 15. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Look at what he's doing. Yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What Paul says emphatically here, and please don't miss this. God's grace, Paul says, was so overabundant to me. And now he's turning and he's saying, and you need to understand that very same grace is abundant towards you. He says, this is a trustworthy statement, deserving of full acceptance. In other words, you can bet your life on this one. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, period. The end. The glorious good news, that's his mission. That's the heartbeat of the glorious good news of the gospel, Jesus himself says in Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. Paul writes in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He says again in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, but God being rich, and there's the word, in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our sin, he made us alive together with Christ. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And Paul says, among whom I am foremost of all. And I think he makes that statement not because he thinks that he's the worst sinner possible. I think he makes that statement because he understands that he made the worst possible sin. He pridefully rejected his need for a savior. Which is why he says in verse 16, my prideful rejection highlights the perfect patience of Jesus Christ. 
Instead of righteous judgment, which he certainly earned, Paul says, I received abundant grace, which he did not deserve. Emphasizing the point that there's no, there's no boundary. There's, there's no limit to God's grace. There's, there's no one too far gone that, that God can't somehow save. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he is, here's the word, patient towards you. Not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Paul reminds us, In Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance? And there's the word again, and patience. Not knowing that the kindness of God leads us to repentance. As you can see, Paul is in no way standing apart from sinners pointing his finger in judgment. Instead, what is he doing? He's inviting them into the same abundant grace that has been lavished upon him, including the false teachers, the lawless, the rebellious, the ungodly. No one is outside the boundaries of God's saving grace. This is a trustworthy statement, deserving of full acceptance. Jesus Christ came to save sinners like you and me which is why Paul then breaks into praise. Look again at verse 17. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory and forever and ever. Amen. Jesus saves because he eternally reigns as sovereign king. Jesus saves because he is incorruptible, unchangeable, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Even when we don't see him, or listen to this, even seek him, he is unceasing in his saving work towards us, including right now. In this moment, Jesus is patiently inviting us to believe. So with that, I just, I want to pause And I want us to consider for a little bit what we just talked about, the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience that leads to a place of repentance. I think we need to just let that sink in a little bit into the depths of our soul and realize that is the heart of a loving God towards you and I, whose grace is being lavished upon us. So I just want us to take some time. I know this is not customary, but we're just going to pray together. Because I think this is what Paul is calling to. Makes me feel like when he wrote this letter, there was kind of italics. Pause here to pray. (laughs) All right, so we're going to do that. And I'm not going to stand apart from you. But like Paul, I want to pray with you. And so let's just pray together. Father, we come to you humbly. Understanding our shared and desperate need for you. That we are a people have received your abundant grace and mercy. Father, I do ask this morning if there is anyone here who came into this place who felt like they were beyond the boundaries of God's grace and mercy, that they would know that they have been invited in 
to experience the fullness of his forgiveness without limitation. So, Lord, if there is anyone here this morning that needs to hear that, would you just impress that deeply upon their heart right now? Give them the courage to surrender and trust in you. And Father, I know that even for those of us who have, in fact, put our trust and faith in you, there are plenty of places in our life of unsurrendered self. It causes us to feel fearful, unforgiving, angry, bitter. And Father, we need your rescue in those places as we always have needed your rescue, even when we came to you in faith for salvation. We need your mercy in those places of unsurrendered self where we are holding on and you are inviting us, please, let go. Trust me. Father, I pray that this morning, no matter where each person in this room might be, that they would experience the weight of the invitation being extended towards them to trust you. That they would really kind of see themselves, just even now picturing in their minds this idea of water flowing over Niagara Falls and just see that water as a picture of the abundant grace that flows into their life, that removes all shame and guilt and restores them with security and hope and acceptance and love. Our sins, they are many, but your mercy is more. Lord, we believe this. And as your people, we pray this together, and it's in your name. Amen. Okay, let's continue in verse 18. Paul says, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping the faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. So having shared his own personal testimony, having extended that invitation for all to believe, for the grace that has been extended to them, he now turns his attention to Timothy. He takes what... God is graciously entrusted to him, and he now hands that to young Timothy. And not just because there's a personal connection between the two of them. We see the same thing with Titus and many others within Paul's ministry. But what we see here is that Paul recognizes that Timothy is this young pastor who has been, in fact, appointed by God. He looks back to when it says prophecies were spoken over him, affirming the gifts that God had given him. I believe Paul is reminding Timothy, this is not just something you decided to do one day. 
God has equipped you. Your brothers and sisters in Christ have affirmed you. So be confident in God's calling and fight the good fight. Knowing that our enemy is a deceiver who specializes in deception and doubt. So the last couple of days, I spent time with a group of men that I've been meeting with annually for almost 30 years. And I remember distinctly, and we actually recalled this together uh, just yesterday, that when we first started meeting together, we were in our 20s and 30s. And we were looking ahead to men in their 50s, 60s, and 70s, men that we had watched, observed, respected. But what we were seeing is as they got older in life, they, as our terminology They pulled over and parked. They said, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. And I don't know that they necessarily abandoned their faith, but they stepped out of a life of ministry, and they lost their influence on younger men around them. And we saw that, and we looked at each other, and we said, we do not want to be one of those people. We want to hit the tape running. We want to finish well. So let's do this. Let's meet together, encourage each other so that we can stand strong. Now, some 30 years later, we stood in this room together and said, but now we understand why it's so hard. As you get older, your body starts to fail. You lose people you love. You take care of your aging parents. There's a cumulative effect of being in the mess of people's lives and not only that, that the mess of your own life. And we said, now we understand why it was so hard. Because our enemy is a deceiver and he wants to create doubt because for the first time, listen to me, for the first time in 30 years, we looked across the room at each other and said, I hope I can hit the tape running because I feel like I'm limping right now. But that's what the enemy wants us to do. He wants us to pull over and park. He wants us to say, I don't think I can do this anymore. And that's why Paul tells Timothy, fight the good fight. Because this is a spiritual battle. And you have a real enemy. But greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So fight the good fight. Paul is urging Timothy to be certain. God will equip you. Be assured of this. God will equip you for anything that he has called you to do. So stand strong in the battle for his truth. Don't let discouragement and doubt creep in and destroy your faith. Knowing that that strong faith comes from a clear conscience Trusting God instead of trusting in yourself. Because his power is actually perfected in your weakness. So trust in him. And I believe Paul makes that kind of a statement as a purposeful contrast with what was being evidenced in the life of two men. Hymenaeus and Alexander. Whose faith was shipwrecked because of a corrupt Conscience. I believe they fell into compromise because of self-reliance. And so in many ways, I think this is a warning not only to young Timothy, but to us. 
Because the reality is, compromise is very contagious. He wants Timothy to learn how to live in dependence upon the Lord, how to cultivate an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. Relying on God's word is the only reliable source of truth. Refusing to be conformed by cultural norms. Because, listen to this, compromise never affects just one person. Sin splatters. And it always affects the people around you. Sometimes the ones who are closest to you are the ones who feel it most. Because not only did these two men shipwreck their own faith, they were causing all kinds of disunity and disturbance within the church at large. And because of that, they were betraying the name of Christ. When self-reliance becomes stronger than God-dependence, sinful compromise is not far behind. Let me say that again. When self-reliance becomes more powerful than God-dependence, then sinful compromise is not far behind. Which is why Paul has such strong words in verse 20. They're almost shocking, aren't they? Because he says, I'm handing these men over to Satan. He's saying, in essence, that they must be removed from the church. They must not be given the protection or a platform to take other disciples away with them. But yet, I also want you to notice how Paul always leaves room for the hope of repentance. He says, that these men should be set out so that they might be taught not to blaspheme. Now, think about that, <laughs> because that's Paul's background. So just like Paul, who was a blasphemer himself, that they might be rescued by the mercy of God. But until that day, their divisive influence must stop. Timothy must take a strong stand for the sake of the church, and so must we. So let me take us back to something that I said in the very beginning that I think is really important and I want you to leave with today. Because I think it's very necessary that we see ourselves in this line of succession. In the same way that God entrusted the glorious good news of the gospel to this undeserving persecutor of the church, transformed into an apostle for Christ Jesus. In the same way that he entrusted it to Paul, Paul then entrusted it to Timothy. From one generation down to the next, it has now been entrusted to you and I. Listen to these words in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. With that in mind, in view, listen to this. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Name that, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses, their sins against them. He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, 
We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And let me just be very clear that this is not a passage that is intended for just pastors. This is the calling of every single person who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You are an ambassador for Christ. You are a minister of reconciliation. So I want us to think about what that looks like in our daily lives. And let me say that that none of this is possible without an abiding faith and a clear conscience. Just like we talked about with, with Paul and Timothy, that, that Paul wanted Timothy to, to develop this deep dependence upon God, to cultivate this abiding relationship with Christ, the same is true for us. Only then will the attributes of that gospel truth come to life in and through our lives so that we can live in a way that puts the gospel on display, which goes so much further, okay, we need to hear this. It goes so much further than just being a good person, to, to, than just being kind to the, the people around you. Because sometimes I think we sanitize Christianity to think that that's enough, right? But man, you look at Scripture, and that doesn't even scratch the surface. Because he's telling us to love people who are not like us. In fact, even those who are against us. Loving our enemies as we would our best friend. Listen to what Jesus himself said. Jesus says, words, so don't let them slip by. Verse, chapter 6, verse 32. Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners who don't know Christ love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend from those from whom you expect to receive something back, what good is that? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back what they gave. But love your enemies. Do good. Lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself is presently, currently kind to ungrateful and evil men. I'm saying, do unto others as God has done unto you. You see, as an ambassador of Christ, we actually want to be imitators of the attributes of God. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. As I was preparing our passage this morning, it kind of humbled me with the reality, this is ultimately what we've been called to do. To image forth God to the world in all of his attributes, kindness, mercy, goodness, forgiveness, grace, love, even to those who are most undeserving, as were we. We see that in Ephesians 4.32, which says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. But then look at verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of of God as beloved children. And I'd just like to suggest that learning to be like God starts with being with God, cultivating that abiding relationship. Because it's really less living out of who 
and more about who you should become. Living out of your new creation identity, having been predestined, as we see in Romans 8, 29, to become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That, my friends, is a life that has been radically transformed by the gospel. It is not just being a kind and good person. It goes so far beyond that. It's been flooded with the abundant riches of God's grace, radically transforming how we live life day to day. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners just like you and me. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this necessary reminder Because sometimes I personally get caught in this idea that somehow it's my job just to make it through the day, to survive. And yet, you've called us to so much more in the abundant life that you've made possible because of the grace that has been flooded and the mercy that is new every morning. And you will equip us for everything that you've called us to do. And we have been called. We see that clearly this morning, to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ, to be ministers of reconciliation, that the text says we beg on behalf of God, be reconciled through faith in Christ. Lord, may that truth that has been entrusted to us penetrate deeply into our hearts. And may it begin not by walking out the door thinking about the next thing we should do, but instead by walking out the door, falling on our knees because we need you, we trust you, and you're the one who brings ultimate healing and hope. So, Father, we entrust these prayers to you, knowing that you have entrusted your good news and abundant grace to us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Amen to that, right? I hope we can learn from the example that we saw in our passage from Paul this morning that as we engage with the world around us, that we lead with vulnerability. Instead of pointing a self-righteous finger in judgment, we can sit across the table and tell someone sincerely, let me tell you how desperately I need Jesus today. And you speak out of that dependence and invite them into that grace that has been lavished on you. Amen.